Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 31. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel... It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him, you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up. And the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. 
They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you. Lovely to be here. Great privilege. Let me tell you about Mike Overd. Mike Overd is an ex-paratrooper. He's also a Christian, wonderfully converted a number of years ago. And since 2009, he's become a regular street preacher in the Somerset market town of Taunton. In 2012, he was arrested under the 1986 Public Order Act, charged of two hate crimes, tried at Taunton Magistrates Court, but acquitted of both charges. In 2014, he was arrested and once again charged with three alleged religious aggravation public order offences. At his trial, he was acquitted of two, but convicted of a third. However, at his subsequent appeal in 2015, he was acquitted of that as well. His story has been covered by both ITV and by BBC. Now, you could argue that Mike should have taken the hint back in 2012 and worked out for himself that the wonderful people of Taunton didn't want him spoiling their Saturday morning shopping experience. But he describes why he does what he does in these words. My motivation for preaching the gospel is my love for Jesus Christ and my deep concern for people who do not know his great love and are heading towards an eternity separated from God. Street preaching uh, is not popular in this country, but it's not illegal, not yet. But in recent years, it has come under attack through government legislation that has been used in effect to suppress free speech. In July, Lord Evans, the former head of MI5, warned, uh, warned us. He said this, The forthcoming counter-extremism bill aims to crack down on extremism, but definitions will be crucial, and implementation of the new powers will be fraught with risk. One can imagine already the powers being used against harmless evangelical street preachers or the like, out of a misplaced zeal, and a desire to demonstrate that they're not directed against one religion alone. Now, this is not the place, and I don't want to defend street preaching per se, not as the the best way to reach people with the wonderful news of the gospel. That is not my point. My point is this. Public preachers of the gospel are being silenced, and the message of the Bible is no longer welcome in our public square, at least not in Taunton. But it's not just public preachers of the gospel that are being silenced, is it? And it's not only in the public realm that the gospel is no longer welcome, is it? Many of us here will perhaps have felt the pressure in our workplaces to keep Jesus out of things. Don't bring him to work. You can have have him at home, 
but don't bring him to work. In our relationships, we must have felt that subtle shift in the dynamic when we introduced God, Jesus, or, or the Bible into a conversation. And so there have been times, no doubt, where we've kept our mouths closed. Our Christian faith to ourselves, the wonderful news of the gospel inside, and we remain silent. I don't think it's just me. That wasn't always the case. In the book of Acts, the early church grew because the apostles couldn't keep quiet about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Having been given the authoritative interpretation of the events of the life, death, resurrection, reign, and future return of the Lord Jesus Christ, they recognized that everyone who put their faith in Jesus would receive this wonderful twofold gift. Namely, firstly, the forgiveness of your sins. And secondly, the gift of the Spirit. And as far as those first Christians were concerned, that is just too good to keep to themselves. But not everyone welcomed the gospel. For some, the very best news that the world has ever heard was very bad news. And they responded by trying to silence those that preached it. I don't know about you, but if I'm faced with the prospect of the squeeze or the smash, if I'm threatened with the experience of imprisonment, there is a very great temptation that rises up within, my, within me to keep silent, to keep stumm. I like freedom. I don't think I'd do well if all I was allowed was walls. In the face of p- the political intimidation that they faced, I'd have been tempted to play along, to play along with the authorities. But what is remarkable about this incident is the courage of these first Christians. Now, if you've lost Acts 4, you might want to find it again. You might be wondering whether we were, when we were ever going to get to it. But uh, throughout this passage, one activity is central, and it is characterized by a repeated phrase. The chapter begins in verse 1 with Peter speaking to the people. In verse 13... It is the courage, or literally boldness, of Peter and John that his opponents, their opponents, find astonishing. In verse 29, the persecuted church asks God to enable them to speak the gospel with boldness, same word. And Luke finishes off the section in verse 31, where he observes that the church, under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit, spoke that word of God with, you've guessed it, boldness. Now that is quite something if we've been following what's been going on in the story. Now I'd like to be like that, wouldn't you? I'd like to be able to stand up courageously for what I believe in. If the gospel is ever going to go to the ends of the earth if the gospel is ever going to get out to the 90% of people who live in London, which of course is Luke's purpose in leaving us Acts, the church is going to need to stand up for the gospel. So how is it then that we can preach the gospel boldly? What is it that we need to be convinced of? 
to do that. Luke records the church's first experience of what would become a long history of opposition and persecution. And in so doing, he observes three convictions that underpinned their bold proclamation of the gospel. Now, how do those work? Well, are you familiar with the child's toy, the weeble? The weeble is a bottom-heavy thing of about this sort of size. And the thing about weebles is weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Weebles wobble, but they don't fall down because there's just there's a weightiness low down. I think these three convictions are like the weightiness of a weeble. We may wobble under opposition and persecution, but if these are deeply embedded within us, if we hold them and believe them, we'll wobble, but we won't fall down. And that's what we're after. Okay, here you go. Here are the three things then that we need to believe. We need the Lord to um, convince us of. Firstly, there's no other way to be saved than through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to be saved than through Christ. Verses 1 to 12. Let's pick up the story in verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed, literally annoyed, because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Now, the religious authorities didn't like what it was that Peter and John were doing. It follows on from what was going on in chapter 3, which was a miraculous healing and their subsequent explanation of what was going on. They didn't like what they were doing. They didn't like what they were saying. What they were doing was teaching God's people in the temple, even though they were just uneducated laymen. What they were saying was that in Jesus Christ, the dead will be raised to life to participate in the restoration of all things, a phrase that comes from chapter 3, verse 21. But mid-sermon, the military arm of the temple authorities interrupted Peter and John. They arrested them. They kept them in a cell overnight because there wasn't time to gather the Sanhedrin that day. And after a night in the cells, Peter and John were then summoned to appear before the ruling elders, these ruling elders of Israel. Verse 5. The next day, the elders, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. Now, that is quite a lineup. In the Bible, the last time these guys got together, they decided to execute Jesus. It is not hard to imagine what was going through Peter and John's mind as they stood there. The fundamental issue is clarified for us in verse 7. They had Peter and John brought before them. They began to question them. By what power or what name are you doing this? So hauled in front of the most influential people of their day, Peter and John were asked, essentially, who has given you the authority to do this? Now, you might have thought that given their rough treatment at the hands of the religious authorities already, Peter would have been a little bit more reticent, circumspect in his public utterances. But he was having none of it, not even in front of this thoroughly intimidating crowd. And being the opportunist that he was, Peter decided to give a fuller answer than they were expecting or perhaps wanting. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, that is under the controlling influence of God's personal presence, he said to them, rulers and elders of the people, 
if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He did what he did in the name of Jesus Christ. The miraculous healing of the man, the crippled man in chapter 3, and the subsequent explanation that Peter gave, that that restoration foreshadowed a future restoration of all things in the new creation, took place because of who Jesus is and what Jesus had done. In other words, Peter was utterly convinced in the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. There was no one else like him. Never had been, never would be. No one else could raise the dead. No one else could heal the crippled. No one else would sort out absolutely everything in terms of cosmic disorder. But Jesus can. He was the resurrected Lord of all. And one day, all people would be resurrected to participate in this future restoration of everything. That's why Peter did what he did. But that was not a view that was shared by everyone. And Peter quoted Psalm 118 to make his point. He said, the stone you builders rejected, sorry, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. The people before whom Peter made his defense looked at Jesus of Nazareth and saw only a rock to be discarded. Something to be picked up and thrown in the skip. But God made Jesus the cornerstone of what it was that he was building. The kingdom of God, which is being constructed in their midst, was built on and built around and held together by his son. Old Israel didn't appreciate who Jesus was and therefore just discarded him. But new Israel had him as the centerpiece of this new structure. And so Peter knew that it was only through Jesus Christ that anyone could belong to this people of God. And he puts it in stark terms in verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. Why? How how could you say that? Well, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Many do not like the exclusivity of that claim. There is salvation in no one else because there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Many don't like that, but Jesus is the world's only saviour. And so salvation can be found in no one else but him. What does that mean for us? Well, if we're to speak and not be silent, we need to be convinced that Jesus stands alone amongst the vast array of religious figures. There are some superficial similarities between him and the, other, and the founders of the other world's religions, but he stands alone. There's no one else like him. Only he can provide salvation from hell for heaven for an eternity in God's presence. Muhammad can't do that. Buddha 
can't do that. And once we believe that only Jesus can save, we'll speak up. We won't be silenced because we won't be prepared to see anyone pass into eternal judgment, miss out on the restoration of all things, ignorant of the gospel that alone can save. But unless we're convinced that Jesus is unique, the odds are, in the face of opposition, we'll be silent. After all, if other religious systems provide a way of salvation, then actually we don't need to speak up, so why go through the bother of irritating people? But we can't do that, can we? People cannot be saved. None of us here can be saved apart from putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because he alone is the saviour. But people aren't going to figure that out for themselves. They need to hear it from someone. And it may well be that they hear it from us. The first conviction then, that if we're ever going to speak up and not be silent, it has to do with the uniqueness of Jesus. Secondly, there's no higher authority to be obeyed than the Lord. In the interaction between Peter and the religious authorities, we glimpse, I think, a deeper conflict. Let's pick it up in verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Luke then records the private deliberations of the Sanhedrin. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing, by which he means Christianity and the resurrection of people from the dead, to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we've got to warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. It's clear, isn't it? They wanted to stop the spread of the gospel. They wanted to prevent the growth of the church. Rightly, they realized the way to do that was to shut people up, stop the apostles from preaching, and the church dies. And so they employed a legislative policy of threat and intimidation, verse 18. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter had other plans. Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? It's your call. You make the judge. You're the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened for the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Peter recognized that every Christian is a citizen of two kingdoms. We all belong to an earthly kingdom, a country, over which God has ordained leaders and to whom we must submit. But we're also members of another kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, over which Jesus Christ is a ruler. If we're Christians, we have loyalties and obligations to both of those two kingdoms. But our first and foremost loyalty is, of course, to Jesus Christ. And so there are limits to civil authority. We heard about that earlier from Taras. 
Secondly, we obey the civil authority only insofar as they do not forbid something that Jesus requires or require something that Jesus forbids. And so there will be times when the right thing for the Christian to do will be to disobey the civil authority out of loyalty to Jesus Christ. This was one of those times because Peter knew he could not be silenced. And so he politely and respectfully pointed out that he was not prepared to be censored. In the 16th century, Andrew Melville was the rector of the University of St. Andrews, and he said something similar. He was known for his repeated efforts to protect the freedom of the church against the encroachments of the government. And he said this, We must discharge our duty or else be traitors both to Christ and you. For there are two kings in Scotland. There is King James, the head of the Commonwealth, and there is Christ Jesus, the King of the Church, whose subject James VI is, of whose kingdom he is not a lord, not a king, but a member. We will yield to you your place and give you due obedience, But you're not the head of the church. You cannot give eternal life, and nor can you deprive us of it. We charge you, therefore, to permit us freely to meet and to preach in Christ's name. Brilliant, isn't it? Fantastic. What does this mean for us? If we call ourselves Christians, then obviously we must obey our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. He is our resurrected ruler. And so, of course, our fundamental, our first and foremost loyalty is to him even before our country. Now, the truth is, it makes us the very best citizens. But when what Jesus requires is at odds with what our culture requires, guess who wins? We must not think that we can maintain our loyalty to Jesus Christ when our government requires us to do something he forbids or forbids something that he requires. And so we must not be silenced, even if it comes via the squeeze. Some of us, I guess, here work in government industries like education and health, and I suspect you will probably feel the pinch before the rest of us. It could mean that there are some here who in the years ahead will face an employment tribunal. You may well be disciplined. You may well lose your job. But you don't need to worry. Churches will learn the lessons of Acts 2. Some here will sell their property to look after you and your family if you're unable to find another job. Perhaps When we suffer for it, the world will realize that the gospel we're so keen to speak about is something worth suffering for, and therefore something worth listening to. The second conviction, then, to make sure that we speak and we're not silent, has to do with this concept of loyalty. Thirdly and finally, there's no spiritual conspiracy that can frustrate God's purposes. Luke tells us the first thing that James and John did on their release was to meet up with their church family. 
and he brought them, uh, and uh, sorry, they brought them up to speed with what had happened. So verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them, and then Luke tells us they prayed, which is a good instinct, isn't it, for a church? And he tells us what they prayed, which was really good theology. Verse 24, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Quoting now from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of, the, of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Striking, isn't it? What happened? They come back. Um, they brief everyone what's been going on. They're night in the, sa- in the, in the cells and before the Sanhe- Sanhedrin. What do they do? How do they respond? They don't mount a campaign for free speech. They don't encourage people to sign an online petition or employ people to lobby government as good as those things are. What do they do? They pray to the sovereign Lord. And the word to describe God there is literally despot, which is a little bit unexpected, isn't it? But God is a ruler of unchallengeable power. He alone has absolute authority. He alone determines the course of history. And therefore, opposition to him is utterly futile. The nations may conspire, but it's a complete waste of time and effort. The only thing they will end up achieving is exactly what God intended should happen in the first place. That was true in David's day when he wrote Psalm 2, which is quoted here. Every human conspiracy against the Lord's anointed is utterly pointless. It was true in Jesus' day when Herod and Pontius Pilate, together with the Roman authorities and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, conspired together to execute Jesus. And it is similarly true in the apostolic era and in every era since. God cannot be thwarted. His purposes will be fulfilled. The cross, after all, shows us that if God can turn a defeat into victory, then there's nothing he can't accomplish. And there's nothing that can hinder the advance of his purposes within the world. And these first Christians were absolutely convinced of that. And so they prayed to someone whom they thought could actually do something in their present distress. Verse 29, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They prayed that God would pay attention to their situation, that he would enable them to speak the gospel with boldness, And that he would continue to authenticate them as Jesus' apostles through those miraculous signs and wonders. But they prayed. John Chrysostom was the Archbishop of Constantinople in the late 4th century. He was known for his denunciation of civil authority 
and as such was often forced into confrontational situations with the government of his day. On one occasion, he was put on trial for his life. And at one point in that trial, the Roman emperor said to him, we will banish you. And Chrysostom is reputed to have said, you cannot banish me, for the whole world is my father's home. Well then, we will execute you, said the emperor. You cannot, he replied. My life is hid with Christ. Well then, we will dispossess you of your estate. You cannot, he said. Uh, I have not got any. All my treasure is in heaven. Well, then we will put you in solitary confinement, said the emperor. You cannot, for I have a divine friend from whom you can never separate me. I defy you. There is nothing you can do to hurt me. That kind of godly defiance of a government that oversteps its mark and conspires to thwart God's purposes can be ours once we're convinced that God is sovereign. What does this mean for us? Now look, I am all for the work of the Christian Institute, Christian Concern, and other similar Christian organizations. I think they do a wonderful work in government, and it's great to see Claire talking about Christians in Parliament on screen. But as I look back over the last 14 and a bit years at Christchurch Ballam, I wonder if I've spent as much time in praying to the Lord about these situations as I have done in writing to the House of Lords at the behest and encouragement of those organizations. That can't be right, can it? I mean, I'm a great writer, and I'm, you know, my letters, I'm sure, are hugely influential, and the, the House of Lords is kind of sort of bending its will to my A4 sheet of scribbled notes. But there's the Sovereign Lord, and he can deal with stuff. The House of Lords may wield influence, the government may wield influence, but they're not sovereign. So let's continue to state the case for Christian liberty, but let's pray, as the Pharaoh Bells did this morning. We must pray to our sovereign Lord and ask him to give us the courage that we lack. My natural reaction when I'm opposed by those that are more powerful than me, more influential than me, is to be silent, or perhaps even worse, to modify my position. But there is no one more powerful than the Lord. The third conviction then has to do with the sovereignty of God. Let me conclude. The Lord gave his praying church an immediate answer in verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They spoke the word of God boldly. And so the word spread. And people heard about the salvation that's only available in Jesus. And those people believed. And the church grew. And so more people could speak boldly about the gospel. And you just can't stop that kind of momentum, can you? Neither government or religious authority, nor the devil who stands behind that kind of opposition can prevent it. And it's this way that the gospel will travel to the ends of the earth the outer reaches of the M25 in fulfillment of Jesus' command. You may have noticed that we missed out verse 4. In a wonderfully ironic aside, Luke tells us that though you can lock up the preachers of God's word, it is impossible to restrain the word itself. 
Many who heard the message believed. And so the the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. And so let's be encouraged. As long as the church preaches the gospel boldly, the word of God will spread. People will become followers of Jesus Christ and the church will grow. We just need to speak the word of God boldly. And Luke has given us three reasons to do that. It has to do with the uniqueness of Jesus. There is salvation in no one else. It has to do with the limits of civil authority. Our fundamental first and foremost loyalties to Jesus Christ before anything else. And it has to do with the sovereignty of God. He is in charge whatever futile human conspiracy is formed against the progress of the gospel. When the church believes these things, when we believe these things, we will spread the word of God. We won't be silent, we'll speak. And when we do that, people will become Christians. So let me pray. Father, we pray that those three convictions would be, debit, um, would be deep within us, embedded right at the heart of our being. We can be convinced that there is salvation in no one else but Jesus. Our loyalty is first and foremost to him and that you are king. And help us therefore not to be silent but to speak and to cope with the flack, to cope with the squeeze, perhaps even to cope with the smash if it comes our way. For Jesus' sake and for his glory and for the growth of his church. Amen.